This is why when you eat carbs, your thiamine is working overtime. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We're now in our 13th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism, and today we're talking about the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. The pyruvate dehydrogenase complex is remarkably similar to the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, so similar that it requires all the same cofactors. And because of this similarity, what we're going to see is that carbohydrate requires thiamine twice in metabolism, whereas fat requires thiamine once in metabolism for every acetyl group that enters the citric acid cycle. And that has important implications for, on the one hand, why problems with thiamine-dependent enzymes or thiamine deficiency can lead to a situation where someone could tolerate a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, such as a ketogenic diet, better than a standard mixed diet or a high-carb diet. And conversely, why thiamine supplementation or other means of trying to fix thiamine-dependent enzymes could help in the case of glucose intolerance, which is widespread in our society. Now, this is a complicated issue, so we're gonna break this into two lessons. In the first lesson today, we're gonna to talk about what happens and why it happens that way on a chemical and biochemical level. In the next lesson, we're actually gonna look at thiamine deficiency, what might cause it, how might thiamine be used to help glucose tolerance. And so in order to get there, let's start out today by just looking at the basic facts of this situation. Shown on the screen is glycolysis in its overall objectives. We have 10 reactions that occur in the cytosol, not in the mitochondria, and we have the conversion of glucose to two molecules of pyruvate. If you look at the chemical formulas, you'll see that glucose is C6H12O6. A half of a glucose molecule would be C3H6O3. In the case of pyruvate, we have C3H4O3 instead of H6O3. And so pyruvate is almost half of a glucose molecule. The only difference is it's been oxidized beyond what's needed to split it in half. And we can see that because hydrogens indicate or reflect the presence of electrons that hold them onto the molecule. So if we're missing hydrogens, we're missing electrons. Now, if you look at these molecules, you'll only see three hydrogens. And that's because I depicted them in their ionized form. So we could have a fourth hydrogen here, and it's just shown in the ionized form. Technically, Pyruvic acid is C3H4O3. Pyruvate, the ionized form, is 
C3H3O-. However, because pyruvate and pyruvic acid in a solution would be at an equilibrium where they're constantly exchanging with each other, we use the terms interchangeably and pyruvate's easier to say than pyruvic acid. Now, if you look at the pyruvate molecule, you'll see that it has a carboxyl group. So it is well-situated to be decarboxylated, which is how we release one of the carbons as carbon dioxide. The question becomes, is the metabolism of pyruvate during its decarboxylation going to be more similar to the decarboxylation of alpha-ketoglutarate that occurred in the citric acid cycle, or the decarboxylation of isocitrate that happened in the citric acid cycle? Because remember, the decarboxylation of isocitrate was relatively easy and simple versus the decarboxylation of alpha-ketoglutarate, which was very difficult and complex. Now, I already gave away the punchline at the beginning. You know that it's going to be similar to alpha-ketoglutarate. But let's take a deeper look at why that's the case. So if you look at pyruvate, the carboxyl, the functional group of interest is the carboxyl group on the top of the molecule shown in purple. The keto group is alpha to it. We start counting at the next carbon away from the car functional group we care about. So this is the alpha carbon. Pyruvate is an alpha keto acid. In fact, pyruvate is the simplest alpha keto acid that occurs in biochemistry. Alpha-ketoglutarate, as its name suggests, is an alpha-keto acid because the keto group is alpha-2, the purple carboxyl group of interest. In the case of isocitrate dehydrogenase, what we had done is, with the help of aconitase, we moved the hydroxyl group from carbon number 3 on citrate to carbon number 2 on isocitrate, and then we oxidized it to the, the keto group within the active site of the isocitrate dehydrogenase enzyme. And the carboxyl group of interest is the carboxyl group on carbon number three shown in purple because that's the one that's going to decarboxylate. And so if we count the carbons alpha, beta, the keto group is beta two, the carboxyl group of interest. For all the reasons that we talked about in earlier lessons, Having the keto group in the beta position made it easier for that molecule to spontaneously decarboxylate. And that's why creating oxalosuccinate as an intermediate in the isocitrate dehydrogenase enzyme allowed us to have this relatively simple decarboxylation. That also left us with a keto group that became alpha in alpha-ketoglutarate, because it's alpha-2, what is now the new carboxyl group of interest. And that was structurally important because it allowed the exchange of alpha-ketoglutarate with glutamate. We had to keep it there even after we decarboxylated alpha-ketoglutarate because we had to use it to construct the carboxyl group of succinate at the top position. And then in the downstream several reactions leading up to oxaloacetate, we had to introduce a new alpha-keto group in that position, and we had to maintain the alpha-keto acid structure to allow the exchange between oxaloacetate and aspartate. That allowed the second entry and exit point 
in the citric acid cycle for amino acids. And we have to have those two points in fact, because as we know from the aspartate aminotransferase enzyme, the only way that aspartate or glutamate can enter the citric acid cycle is by exchanging with each other. So we need to have those two connection points to allow the citric acid cycle to act as a metabolic hub that can allow amino acids and keto acids to interconvert. So pyruvate, how is this similar and different? Well, pyruvate is an alpha keto acid. So if we don't do anything to it, we're gonna have to metabolize it in the complex and difficult way that we metabolized alpha ketoglutarate. You could ask the question, well, why don't we just move the keto group to the beta position? There's a couple of reasons why that's just not gonna fly but they're different than the reasons for alpha-ketoglutarate. In the case of alpha-ketoglutarate, we couldn't play around with the position of the keto group because we needed it to be where it was for the structural features of the downstream metabolites. In the case of pyruvate, that actually doesn't matter because if you took off the carboxyl group, what you'd have left over could be flipped around back and forth and wind up being the same. So let's say that we decarboxylated pyruvate without moving the keto group. We'd be left over with acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde is very much almost identical to the acyl group that corresponds to acetic acid. The only difference is that it's capped by a hydrogen on the end and is a complete molecule in itself. But let's say that we had moved the keto group into the beta position on pyruvate and decarboxylated it, what would we be left over with? Acetaldehyde. The only difference is that the keto group is on the bottom carbon instead of the top carbon, but flip the molecule around and that's not true anymore. So it doesn't matter for the sake of the downstream structural features. What really matters is, can we actually take acetaldehyde that's produced freely in metabolism and wind up with acetyl-CoA. And we can't for a variety of reasons. First of all, everything that we said back when we first started talking about the citric acid cycle, about the volatility of acetate, applies even more to acetaldehyde. If you look at acetate, it's volatile because of its small size, only two carbons. But it has polar bonds. Carbon and oxygen are polar, and the partial negative of oxygen will be attracted to the partial positive of the hydrogens of water, and the partial positive of carbons will be attracted to the partial negatives of the oxygen of water. Furthermore, the oxygen on the end can ionize and have a full negative charge that has even stronger interactions with water. Although acetate is small, the fact that it has strong interactions with water prevent it from being as volatile as it would otherwise be. By contrast, acetaldehyde is just as small, which promotes volatility. But it has fewer polar bonds. It does have the carbonyl, but it doesn't have the extra carbon and oxygen, and it never has the possibility of having a negative charged oxygen on the end. Therefore, acetaldehyde has even weaker reactions with water and is even more volatile when compared to acetate. So to have free acetaldehyde as a metabolite within our 
system of energy metabolism would not be a good idea. Further, although it's well beyond the scope of this lesson, free aldehydes are really dangerous because they can bind to proteins and create toxic effects. That's something we'll talk a lot more about later when we get to glycation. Free acetaldehyde would also have even more trouble forming acetyl-CoA than free acetate would. In the case of free acetate, we absolutely have a plausible reaction where the OH of acetate and the H of CoA sulfhydryl group could come together to make water, shown on the right, and that's going to result in dehydration synthesis to produce acetyl-CoA. Because of the high-energy thioester bond, however, that has a very large positive delta G. And if an enzyme is going to catalyze that reaction, it would have to couple it to something with a very large negative delta G that more than compensates for that. So even that reaction isn't going to happen on its own. However, with acetaldehyde, we'd have even more problems. So first of all, if you look at the molecule, there's no O to make H2O. So you can't have dehydration synthesis. If you don't have dehydration synthesis, you'd have to couple it to oxidation because you'd have to remove this hydrogen with its electron to make a binding site on this carbon, and you'd have to do the same thing to make a binding site on that sulfur. So if you don't have the possibility for dehydration synthesis and you don't have it coupled to another oxidation reaction. And then on top of that, you don't have the energy required to make this high-energy thioester bond. You're really stuck doing very little with that except allowing it to have toxic reactions or evaporate. So that's depicted here by these two molecules trying to come together and they just hit into each other and bump apart. All right. Enough with imagining the counterfactuals. What really happens is that pyruvate and alpha-ketoglutarate are metabolized in almost identical ways. The difference is that alpha-ketoglutarate is metabolized by the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, whereas pyruvate is metabolized by the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. And alpha-ketoglutarate produces succinyl-CoA, whereas pyruvate produces acetyl-CoA. The pyruvate dehydrogenase complex couples the release of energy from the decarboxylation of pyruvate to the energetically unfavorable reduction of NAD plus to NADH and the energetically unfavorable acetylation of CoA. The pyruvate dehydrogenase complex requires thiamine pyrophosphate derived from vitamin B1 as a cofactor in the same way as the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, and it does the same thing. Thiamine pyrophosphate, or TPP, forms the carb anion. The negative charge of the carb anion attracts the positive partial charge of the ketocarbonyl. And as it gets drawn to the molecule, the oxygen of the keto carbonyl takes the electron from the carb anion and it gets sucked up and a hydrogen ion comes in to make that a hydroxyl group. 
The loss of negative charge on the carbanion exposes the concentration of positive charge on the nitrogen of TPP, and that positively charged nitrogen acts as an electron sink. To take the extra electron that's hanging out on the carboxyl group down here to allow the cascade of electron transfers up to the nitrogen that winds up oxidizing the carboxyl group to release carbon dioxide. Just as in the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, we have a reaction intermediate that is gonna be oxidized by the disulfide bond of lipoate or lipoic acid or the lipoyl group of enzyme two and the oxidation of that reaction intermediate produces an acetyl group that becomes bound to one of the sulfurs of the lipoate moiety of enzyme two. If you look at a textbook like the Berg textbook, biochemistry, they'll show some additional nuances of resonance structures that actually allow this hydrogen ion to come into this molecule and then skip down to this molecule, and I'm glossing over those. So see the well-respected Berg biochemistry textbook if you want those details. But these are the key features of these reactions, and you'll notice that this is remarkably similar, almost identical, to what we looked at for alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, except Instead of producing a succinyl group on enzyme two, we produce an acetyl group on enzyme two. And the first enzyme is called pyruvate decarboxylase because it's decarboxylating pyruvate instead of alpha-ketoglutarate. And enzyme two is called dihydrolipoyl acetyl transferase instead of succinyl transferase because it's transferring an acetyl group to coenzyme A instead of a succinyl group. The second enzyme then passes the acetyl group to coenzyme A to produce acetyl-CoA. Instead of the succinylation of CoA, we have the acetylation of CoA. Just as with the succinylation of CoA that we saw before, the acetylation of CoA does not involve a redox reaction. It simply in involves the exchange of the acetyl group for the hydrogen on the sulfhydryl group of CoA. That hydrogen then moves to constitute the sulfhydryl group of, lip of lipoate, producing dihydrolipoyl that now has to be oxidized to regenerate the form of enzyme two that's able to engage in the subsequent reactions. The third enzyme then uses FAD as a prosthetic group that never leaves the enzyme to oxidize the sulfhydryl groups of the dihydrolipoyl moiety of enzyme two. In doing so, FAD becomes FADH2 and the dihydrolipoyl group returns to the oxidized form where instead of reduced sulfhydryl groups, we have a disulfide bond. FADH2 then needs to be oxidized, and NAD plus comes in as a diffusible energy carrier, snags the hydrogen ions and electrons, and becomes NADH plus H plus to carry those down to the electron transport chain. 
On the one hand, that provides useful energy to synthesize ATP in the form of NADH that's generated outside of the citric acid cycle and from glucose. On the other hand, it also serves the purpose to regenerate all of the active enzyme forms. By oxidizing FAD, we return it to its original state so that it can oxidize another dihydrolipoyl group. In doing that, it created the disulfide bond that's necessary to oxidize the reaction intermediate on TPP to the acetyl group. And by doing that, it had allowed the regeneration of the form of TPP carb anion that's able to participate in the first reaction. So as electrons move down and the acetyl group gets formed and goes away on CoA, everything also serves to allow the enzymes to do this over and over again. Now, all three steps are remarkably analogous to those in alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. But the third enzyme, dihydrolipoyl dehydrogenase, is not just analogous to the third enzyme of the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, it is the same enzyme produced by the same gene. This one gene that produces this one protein accounts for the activity of that protein in two different enzymatic complexes that are in two different, although intersecting, metabolic pathways. That is remarkable. Now, when we talked about the seven unforgettable things of the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, they all apply here. For example, the enzymatic coupling, as we already saw, exists here. The substrate channeling and the interactions of the massive complex exist here. So just like an alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, dehydrogenase, dehydrogenase complex, we have this flexible arm of enzyme 2 that has the lipoyl group that reaches in to the active site of enzyme 1 as pyruvate instead of alpha-ketoglutarate is decarboxylated. And it takes what is now an acetyl group instead of a succinyl group. And then it takes that acetyl group down into its own active site where the acetylation of CoA takes place so that acetyl-CoA can leave. And then the flexible arm of the lipoyl group, now a dihydrolipoyl group, reaches deep into the active site of enzyme 3 so that FAD can oxidize the sulfhydryl groups to the disulfide form. Finally, the flexible arm of enzyme 2 retracts, and NAD plus comes in and oxidizes FADH2, taking the electrons away to the electron transport chain as NADH. Just as the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex was a massive complex that we can envision with electron microscopy as a cube made of repeating spheres with multiple copies of all three enzymes, so the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex looks almost exactly the same with the same macromolecular organization. Shown here is a picture of 700,000 magn times magnification of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex taking the form of this large cube of multiple repeating spheres.
So what this means is that also applying to pyruvate dehydrogenase is the requirement for the cofactors, thiamine and lipoic acid, niacin and riboflavin. But just as with alpha-ketoglutarate, this requirement for thiamine is relatively unusual in energy metabolism, whereas niacin and riboflavin are universal. And so thiamine is gonna be very important for these two complexes. Now, we haven't gotten to protein metabolism yet. There's an analogous complex in protein metabolism called the branched chain alpha ketoacid dehydrogenase complex that metabolizes branched chain amino acids. But branched chain amino acids are a relatively small proportion of the protein requirement, and we use protein a lot for anabolic synthesis of muscle proteins. So the overall contribution of protein to energy multiplied by the contribution of branched-chain amino acids to the use of protein for energy, it's a relatively minor proportion in the diet. Because protein metabolism is so complex and we're discussing it later, we're just gonna look right now at these two complexes. And indeed, pyruvate dehydrogenase and alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase constitute most of thiamine's, of thiamine's role in energy metabolism. So at this point, we can now look at the fact that two uses of thiamine for carbohydrate versus one for fat mean thiamine is really important to glucose tolerance and to the ability to run on carbs versus fat. And we're gonna look at that point in the next lesson. But we have to keep in mind that the need for lipoic acid here implies also the vulnerability to oxidative stress and oxidative damage, also the vulnerability to inhibition by heavy metals and other toxins. Given that, there's always more to the picture than just thiamine and thiamine deficiency here. But looking at the practical implications of this is our topic for the next lesson. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. To continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my Facebook at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn. Or you can sign up for NWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching and self-pacing tools, downloadable audio, downloadable transcripts, and a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions, and a community with a forum for each lesson. If you really wanna own these lessons, study them and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.